The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. This morning we return to our study of the book of Judges. The book of Judges. And we do so by looking at one of the most colorful characters in all the Bible, from Old Testament to New Testament. This is a man who has a weakness for women. He has a strong attraction to danger. He was a guy who did such incredible feats of strength that his enemies both hated him and feared him. He's a man who, despite all of his failures and foibles, which we will consider some of them this morning, was nevertheless called by God to be a representative of Jesus Christ and to point the way forward to the coming of Christ who would not appear for more than a thousand years after his death. Now, of course, I'm talking about the man Samson. Samson was the last of the judges that is named in the book of Judges. And in many ways, he's the best known and certainly the most imposing figure among all those judges of the Old Testament. Now, you remember that the book of Judges is the seventh book in the Old Testament. It's the book that records for us the history of Israel from the time Joshua led them into the land of promise and settled them there to the time of the kings. It covers about a two to four hundred year period of history. It ends in about 1050 BC when Saul was established as the first king over Israel. The book of Judges begins on page 200 of the Bibles that we have available for you here. And I'm going to ask you to take a copy of the Bible and turn to Judges. And we're going to be looking at the middle part or latter part of the chapters there. But you'll need the Bible this morning. Otherwise, you're probably going to be hopelessly lost and confused as we try to work through this section that tells us about this man named Samson. Now, the word judge in the Old Testament and the office of judge is not the same as we have today. When you think of judge today, you think of the guy that sits over in the Lee County Courthouse who has the law and makes decisions based upon the law. Well, that's not what the Old Testament office of judge was. The Old Testament office of judge was a, a leader. He, he was a person who knew what needed to be done and was willing to do it. God gave his people judges when they found themselves at their wits end, when they found themselves being oppressed sometimes by enemy nations, sometimes just because of inner turmoil, but God would raise up a judge in order to deliver them, to save them, to preserve them, to help them to remember and do his will. These judges, however, could never finally do what the people of God in the Old Testament really needed done. Rather, Every one of them was flawed. Every one of them is limited in what they could accomplish. And so the result is that the whole book of Judges leaves us longing for something more. Every incident of a judge being raised up and serving leaves us with a sense of we need something more. We need someone more. Someone greater. And in that sense, the whole book of Judges points forward to the one final judge, the true judge, Jesus Christ. The book of Judges is in the Bible to show us how much we need a Savior like Jesus who does everything to save His people from our sin. Though Samson is in many ways the greatest of all the Old Testament judges, when we look 
at the things he accomplished and how he accomplished them, we have to confess that indeed he was a deeply, tragically flawed individual. And the salvation that he accomplished was also flawed and at best temporary. His story is found in chapters 13 through 16 of the book of Judges. And in chapter 13, the angel of the Lord comes to his mother and begins to prepare her and her husband for the birth of this son that will be from God. And he says in chapter 13, verse 5, that this son, your son, will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. In that sense, Samson was only a startup savior. He only began to do what Israel ultimately needed done. And he too leaves us longing for something more. Someone more. And if we see Samson's life rightly, we'll long for Jesus Christ. And we who live today will look back with praise and wonder that God has given us not a startup Savior. He's given us a complete Savior in Jesus. In chapter 13 of the book of Judges, we see Samson's beginning, his life that has a rather bright beginning. It's a dark time in Israel's history. It's an oppressive time. The Philistines have kind of taken over their livelihood. And God gives Samson to faithful parents. His parents were worshipers of the true God. They had not coalesced to all the ways of the Philistines. When God sent the angel of the Lord to his parents to tell them what he was about to do and giving them a son and how this son was to live, he said, this son who I entrust to you will begin to save Israel. He's going to be a judge and you are to acknowledge that he's consecrated wholly to me. Specifically, God wanted Samson to be set apart, recognized as one whose life was devoted to the living God, Yahweh, the one true God. And he did this by telling his mother that he would be a Nazarite. That is, that he would take vows that would outwardly demonstrate his life being consecrated to the one true God. A Nazarite was a person who vowed never to drink any fruit of the vine, not any wine, whatever cross his lips. He vowed not ever to touch a dead body. He vowed never to cut his hair so that these things would symbolize total consecration to God. He wouldn't look like, he wouldn't act like other people because his life belonged to God. And the angel in chapter 13, verse 7 told his mother that Samson would be a Nazarite from the womb until the day of his death. Now chapter 14 goes on to describe something of Samson's beginning of manhood. And it's a marred manhood. The chapter focuses upon a foolish, sinful marriage that Samson entered into. Not that marriage is foolish or sinful, not at all. But if you go against what God says, it becomes foolish and sinful. And that's what Samson did. God specifically prohibited his people from marrying outside their faith. And yet, Samson married a Philistine woman. A woman who worshipped pagan gods. And when he did this, he kind of gives us a little bit of a reflection on ourselves about why he did it. In chapter 14, verse 3, his parents are saying, why, why are you going to marry a Philistine? I mean, can't you find a nice girl among the Israelites, you know, that kind of attitude. But they were right because they didn't want him to marry outside the faith. And in chapter 14, 
verse 3, we read this, that Samson justifies his decision. He says, this woman is right in my eyes. So what's he doing? Well, he's acting pretty much the way we act, right? Isn't that what we do? God says one thing. We want another thing. And so we choose our thing against God's thing, and then we start justifying it. Well, it just seemed right. Seemed right to me. It, it, it is right for me. And we neglect what God has clearly revealed. Well, Samson's marriage is a disaster. Chapter 14 ends with Samson at the wedding party actually being enraged. He's mad at his wife, and he's mad at the people in the wedding, and he leaves the town of Timma where his wife and her father lived, and he stalks off back to his own home. Well, the father of Samson's wife doesn't know what to do, and so he thinks he doesn't want her anymore, so he gives Samson's wife to Samson's best man in the wedding. It's crazy. Chapter 15 begins with Samson deciding to go back to claim his wife. And if you know anything about Samson, you won't be surprised to know things get very interesting at that moment. What I want us to see in studying chapters 15 and 16 today in the life of Samson is that imperfect saviors, imperfect saviors who do not completely save, leave us longing for the one perfect Savior who alone can save completely. That's what Samson does for us in the Bible. He teaches us warnings. He shows us some pictures, cloudy, but nevertheless real pictures of what's coming in Jesus. And he gives to us a sense of, oh God, we need what only you can do, what none of us could ever do for ourselves. Well, in chapter 15, through the middle part of chapter 16, we see Samson as an imperfect savior who has a deteriorating devotion to God. He's a Nazarite, he's been set apart for God, but you begin to see him drift away in increasing fashion against God. So I want to read chapter 15 for us this morning. Again, I want you to follow along. I'm going to start in verse 1. The big numbers on the page are chapter divisions, the little numbers are verse divisions, and we're going to read all the way through this 15th chapter. So you follow along as I read aloud God's word for us from, from Judges chapter 15. Found on page 214, that's where it starts. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion, is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please, take her instead. Samson said to him, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and he caught 300 foxes and he took torches and he turned them tail to tail and he put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stack grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I'll quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etom. 
Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we've come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, we've come down to bind you that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that is caught in fire and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand and the place was called Ramoth Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and he said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi and water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Try to imagine the look on the face of Samson's father-in-law when he opened the door. Here's this guy who everybody knows has killed a lion with his bare hands. He has killed all these Philistines that had abused, or that, that he needed their clothing in order to pay off a debt. He'd gotten angry at his wife at the very celebration of their marriage and left her. And now he shows up and he's got a young goat under his arm. That'd be like a box of candies today. He's trying to make peace. He's there to get everything going in the right direction. And here's dad who's taken this guy's wife and given her to somebody else. And he sees him there at the door. Well, the peace that Timnah had enjoyed for a couple of months is about to be shattered. The text says that it happened in the spring of the year after some days during the time of wheat harvest. That would have been late spring. The wedding probably took place in early spring, so there's been a couple of months when things have seemed kind of settled, but now Samson shows up and things are about to get interesting again. This chapter records two major conflicts between Samson and the Philistine that escalate the tensions between the Israelite and their Philistine neighbors. These conflicts demonstrate this deteriorating devotion that Samson has to the Lord, the Lord who called him before his birth to lead Israel, to serve God in saving Israel. But these verses also demonstrate God's absolute sovereignty in ruling over all of the affairs of life to fulfill his eternal purposes. So let's look at the two conflicts. The first one is found in the first eight verses, and it records the retaliation that Samson exacts because of his broken marriage. When his father-in-law tells him what he's done, Samson explodes. He had an anger problem, and he lets it out. 
And so he decides that he's going to go and wreak havoc among the Philistines. So this is, imagine this, this is crazy. He catches 300 foxes. It may have been jackals rather than foxes. It's the same word in Hebrew. And he gets them together, having trapped them. He ties their tails together, and he puts a torch in the midst of both tails. So you've got two jackals or two foxes who each want to go their own way. Their tails won't let them go their own way, and now they've got a torch. So there's 150 mobile torches that he sends out into the harvest of the Philistines. And it would have wreaked havoc. It would have been quite a sight to see these animals going this way and that way. And they burned the grain that was left in the field. They burned the grain that had been cut and stacked up. They even burned the orchards that were bearing olives at that time. He just devastated a portion of the Philistine economy. Well, what did the Philistines do? They said, who did this? It's the son-in-law of the Timnite because the Timnite gave away his wife. So what did they do? They go to the father-in-law's house and they burn it down with the man and his daughter inside it. Well, Samson then is determined that he's going to retaliate even more. He promises vengeance upon those responsible for killing his wife and father-in-law. Notice how he does it in verse 7. He says, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I'll quit. He makes two promises. I'm going to pay you back for what you've done, and then I'm going to be done. So what does he do? He kills those people who had indeed killed his wife, and then he decides to just withdraw. He goes to a quiet place, and he seems like he's going to be content to just live out his life. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34, we are told that Samson is a man of faith, and that's undoubtedly true. But Samson was also a man with a violent temper. After destroying the Philistines' produce, he violently killed the men who murdered his wife and father-in-law, and he said, after this, I'm done. I'll be finished. You won't have to worry about me anymore. He probably did intend to quit, but you know what happens, right? You exact vengeance on someone Rarely are they satisfied just to say, okay, we're even. Right? You see it in kids, right? A little kid will hit his brother or sister, and he hits him back a little bit harder. It pushes him down. So he gets up and hits and kicks, and it just escalates. Well, that's what goes on here. There's this escalation of animosity between Samson and the Philistines. What happens is that Samson starts acting out of his own pain and sense of justice to retaliate against his enemies for what they have personally done to harm him. There's no sense here that Samson, set apart from God, from the, for God from the time he was born, has any sense of defending the honor of God. There's no sense that Samson is really concerned about the welfare of the Israelite people that he is leading. This is purely personal with him. Though a servant of the Lord called to lead God's people, he acts out of his own selfish self-interest. Now, there are at least two lessons that we can learn from this. Two truths that God shows us here, puts on display, that are taught throughout both the Old and New Testaments repeatedly. The first is this, that God providentially rules and overrules every event in our lives to bring about his eternal will. He rules 
overrules in every event of our lives to bring about his eternal purpose. Back in chapter 14, verse 4, when Samson's parents were upset about his desire to marry a Philistine woman, it's interesting that the text tells us that they didn't know this, that it was from the Lord, for God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. In other words, God was using Samson's intention to marry outside of his faith to provoke a fight with the Philistines. See, God's people had become so assimilated into the ways of the Philistines, so influenced by them, that basically there was no difference between them anymore. The Israelites lived just the way the Philistines did. They thought the way the Philistines did. They acted the way the Philistines did. They valued what the Philistines valued. They'd lost their distinctiveness as God's own people. So God used Samson's lust to begin the process of reestablishing a separation between the Israelites and the Philistines. God rules. He reigns. He overrules so that he might guarantee to work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So brothers and sisters, if that's you, be encouraged. Be encouraged. God's not off the throne. The things that might look chaotic and might appear at this moment to have no purpose or meaning, God is ruling and overruling to fulfill his ultimate purpose. That's one lesson. The second lesson is this. God indeed is a God of grace, and the only people that he accepts and uses in his kingdom are sinful, flawed people. Now, we've seen this throughout the book of Judges already. If you read the Bible with both eyes open, you can't help but notice that this is always true. Even the great heroes of our faith are flawed people. They're weak people. God doesn't use simply good people. He doesn't simply accept and use those people who have everything right in their lives, who've done everything that they ought to do. If that were true, God would not be a God of grace. The God of the Bible is a God who works in grace, doing for us what we don't deserve, working in us and accepting us, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who He is and what He has done. Now, this does not mean that we're free to believe error or to disobey God's commandments or to think that there'll be no consequences for disobeying God's commandments. But what it does mean is that we should never think that our failures, our foibles will overthrow God's purposes. In fact, I like the way that David Jackman has put it. He says, God is in the business of using our failures as the foundations for his success. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, you look at your life and you see mistakes, you see failures, you see sin, and you think, man, I'm just blown it. I just need to try to hang on and get by. No. God uses all of our mess in order to display to the world that he is a God of great grace, a God of great power. Well, the second event in chapter 15 involves Samson's killing a thousand men of the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. It's found in, page, in verses 9 through 17. Of course, the Philistines are going to strike back at Samson, so they do. They raid the little town of Lehi. 
the men of Judah, the Israelites that are there, say, why are you doing this? And they, they turn Samson over to the Philistines. And then Samson takes the jawbone of a donkey, kills a thousand of them by the power of God's Spirit, and then makes up a song about how great he is in having done it. Now there's an important observation to make at this point. Notice the three-way communication between the Philistines, the men of Judah, the Israelites, and Samson. The Philistines come and demonstrate they have no beef with the Israelites in general. Verse 10, our quarrel's not with you. We're looking for one man. And then the Israelites demonstrate that they have no beef with the Philistines in verse 11. I mean, this, this is interesting. Verse 11, they've accepted their lot. When they go to Samson, look at what they say to him. Don't you know the Philistines are rulers over us? In one sense, that could be the saddest sentence in the book of Judges. It certainly reflects the lowest point spiritually of this period of history of the Judges. And the Israelites don't even recognize how spiritually low they are. They've given up allegiance to the living God. They've accepted that the Philistines rule over them. That they just need to go along to get along. They're not upset about it. They're not trying to throw it off. They're not concerned about being consecrated to God. They go to Samson, what, what, you're disturbing the peace here. These are our lords. These are our rulers. This is just the way it is. They've accepted the fact that they prefer friendship with the world above commitment to the Lord. Do you know what God thinks about that attitude? An attitude that is more concerned to just go along with the world, get along, think the way the world thinks, live on the schedule the world sets, choose what the world says is good and right and proper, to the neglect of what God says in His Word. You know what God thinks about that attitude? We don't have to speculate. God has spoken very plainly through James in the New Testament. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James writes to Christians who are living like unbelievers in the world, and he says to them, you adulterous people. God calls it adultery. Spiritual adultery. He says to them, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to write it down and get used to it. Devotion to Jesus Christ, wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ, will put you on a collision course with the world. It will. And the only way that you can avoid that type of collision at various points is to acquiesce. You just go along. Say, well, that's just kind of the way the world is. We've got to think this way. We've got to do these things. We've we got to have it. We don't have any choice. It's the way we've got to be. See, the world will never willingly acquiesce to the ways of God. And when God's people acquiesce to the world, then the Bible says we are engaging in spiritual adultery. We are turning away from the one to whom we have been devoted. We 
must humbly, decidedly follow Jesus Christ against the currents of what the world thinks is right and good and acceptable. Because if we do not do that, what we will discover is what happened to the Israelites is that the conflict with the world will begin to diminish because the world will have become our ruler. This is why the challenge that Joshua gave to the Israelites must be brought before God's people in every age. After Joshua led the Israelites into the land of promise, and they'd settled that land, when he was an old man before he died, he gathered the nations together, the Israelite uh, tribes together. And in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15, he issued this challenge. Listen to it. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Brothers and sisters, friends, that's what God says to us today. That's what God is saying right now to every one of us here today. Choose. Who are you going to serve? Who's it going to be? How are you going to live? You're going to go on with the same standards, same attitudes, same outlook, same schedules, same principles, same values as the unbelieving world? Are you going to come to a point in your life where you say, my God rules, he's my Savior through Jesus Christ, my Lord. I submit to him. I will live for him. Choose. That's the call of the Bible to every one of us today. It's the call of the Bible to every person in every generation. Who will you serve? Not who will you give lip service to. Who will you serve and honor and worship as Lord? If you don't know Jesus as Lord today, my friend, I beg you, I plead with you today to come to know Him as the one true Lord and Savior. He's the only complete Savior the world has. Trust Him. Believe Him. And you will find God accepting you. Well, at the end of this chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, we see Samson complaining against God. I mean, he has this great victory, names the hill, Jawbone Hill, sings his song, and then for the first time in this story, we find Samson praying. First record of his praying. But notice the prayer. It has a, a sound of impertinence to it, doesn't it? It's almost like he has an entitlement mentality. Listen to it. He was very thirsty. He called upon the Lord. It's verse 18. And he said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Like, God, look what I've done. Where's my water? This is a further example of this deteriorating devotion that he has toward God. God has greatly gifted him, greatly used him, but the impression cannot be missed that Samson is doing what he does, not for the Lord's sake, but for his own sake. He has great gifts, but not great godliness. And that's a horrible combination. This becomes even more evident when we read what happens at the beginning of chapter 16. If you look at those first three verses, we see this little dalliance with a prostitute down in Gaza. Verse 1 of chapter 16. 
Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, carried them to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. I would imagine when the Philistines saw that, they changed their mind. Maybe we won't try to take this guy. What does this tell us? Well, Gaza was the capital of Philistia, the capital of this enemy territory of the people who hate Samson and want to kill him. So there are at least two things that we can learn about Samson from this little incident. The first is he probably was an adrenaline junkie. Just love danger for danger's sake. Just, just to do whatever's dangerous gave him a buzz. He goes to the capital of the place where people hate him. But secondly, Samson is what we would probably call today a sex addict. He just can't stay away from women. He, he just has to be sexually fulfilled by women. He has to use women as objects of pleasure. We've seen this already in chapter 14 by the way that he went after this Philistine woman to be his wife because it was right in his eyes. We see it now as he goes to this prostitute to satisfy himself. We're going to see it at the end of the chapter 2 where he gives himself to a woman who's well-known by the name of Delilah. After Samson escapes the Philistines in this incident through this incredible display of physical strength, he takes up with another woman. He takes up with Delilah. And this time, it's going to be his downfall. This is going to do him in. Look at verses 4 through 22. This is the most famous part of this whole story. And I want to read it to you. So again, follow along. Chapter 16. I'm going to get in verse 4. It starts on page 215. And I'm going to read down to verse 22. The scripture says, After this, Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came, upon, or came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may blind and, or bind and humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. You've you got to think, what's going on with Samson? This woman tells him what she wants. She wants to have him subdued. Verse 7, he says, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. And the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches a fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, 
Until now, you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with this pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke up from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak, be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he's told me all his heart. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. This is a classic example of a dysfunctional relationship. Just classic. The psychologist today would have a field day with this. She agrees to use Samson for money while he uses her for sex. He wants sex. She wants money. And so they use one another. The Philistine lords came and offered her 1,100 pieces of silver each. There were five of them because there were five key Philistine cities. Each one had a lord. So this was within 5,500 pieces of silver. We don't know how much that was, how heavy it was, but it was a significant and overwhelming sum of money. And Delilah was willing to sell out this guy for money. She didn't love him. He didn't love her. They just used each other. Samson here forgot his vow to the Lord. He renounced it, in essence. He did so in pursuit of his own pleasure. We see in this incident how he trusted in his own self-sufficiency. I mean, he had to know. People have studied this passage. It's been the subject of poems, of, of musical scores, of movies, of books, of poetry. And, and you look at it, you, you say, what's going on with Samson? And we get Delilah, she wanted the money, but what's going on with Samson? There was something just driving him in this. And he had to know that she was trying to do him in. And yet he keeps on just toying with her until finally he just tells her. And, and it might be that even that sense of danger to an adrenaline junkie would make it all the more attractive to just toy with the idea. He was so determined to have pleasure from her that he willingly threw his life away in order to keep experiencing it. This shows the consequences of having great gifts and relying on those great gifts in your own strength while rebelling against God's will. Now, there are so many parts of this story that we could dive into with profit. 
I mean, in many ways, it provides to us an anatomy of addictive behavior. Samson just keeps spiraling downwards, all the while knowing that he's not in a good way, he's not in a good place. What is it that keeps him going from one level to the next? What is it? Probably it's denial. A a willingness to acknowledge reality as it is and respond appropriately. That's what denial is. He says, I can handle this. I can handle it. Just one more time. Just one more time. And he keeps going till finally, verse 16, so poetically tells the story, his soul was vexed to death and he just gives up completely. But even then, even then, when his Nazarite vow is broken, his strength is gone, when Delilah says to him, the Philistines are upon you. Look at verse 20. He's still living in denial. He awoke from his sleep. He said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. This is always the result, the end result, of destructive, addictive behavior that is not interrupted by dealing with reality, confessing sin and weakness, turning from sin, and returning to the God who created you and calls you to live wholeheartedly in dependence upon Him. That's what happened to Samson. And he hit rock bottom. His deteriorating devotion to God spun so out of control that he wound up once again in Gaza. Only this time, he didn't go there looking for some sexual thrill. This time, he went there blinded because his enemies had gouged his eyes out in fetters to be made sport of. And so, to the capital city, he's led in chains by his enemies. What a sad story. What a tragic story. Such a gifted man. So much potential, so strong, so many opportunities, so many blessings, but so flawed, so incapable of doing what must be done. As an imperfect Savior, not only does Samson have a deteriorating devotion to God, but by God's grace, the end of the story in chapter 16 shows that he had what I would call an excellent end. Now, it may not seem excellent because he dies. But I believe it is excellent in the overall scope of his life. Let me read it to you in verse 23 and following of chapter 16. Now, the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and rejoiced. And they said, our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which this house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and the lords of the Philistines were there, And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, 
that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This final scene brings into sharp focus what was going on the whole time that didn't always foremost in the story. See, the story of Samson is not primarily a story of a contest and tension between the Israelites and the Philistines. That's there. It's not even primarily a story of tension between him and the Philistines. That's there too. But this is primarily a story of the tension, the conquest between the God of the Israelites and the God of the Philistines. This is a story that's designed to show us and remind us who the true God is. The God of the Israelites, Yahweh, or the false God of the Philistines, Dagon. The Philistines think that they've won the day by the power of their God. Look at verses 23 and 24 again. Listen to their singing, their boasting. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who's killed Many of us, they're looking at Samson, blind, little boy leading him, his hands in chains, making sport of him. They're saying, look at this great enemy, how weak, how helpless he is. Our God, Dagon, is the great true God. When they say this and celebrate this, they show that they're ignorant of the nature and the ways and the purposes of the one true God. They think that they figured out the secret of Samson's power. They think it's just his hair, like there's some kind of magic in the hair. Samson was great because his God was great. Samson was strong because his God was strong. The hair was just a symbol of that. God's Spirit is the one who empowered Samson to do great work. And God had promised Samson and his parents that he would be consecrated to God as a Nazarite until the day of his death. In chapter 13, verse 7. The Philistines didn't know that promise, or if they'd heard it, they didn't believe it. And then the Philistines are destroyed by the God whose power is perfected in weakness. We see it in verse 28, verse 30 again. Samson prays, this time in humility and faith. And the Lord grants his request. The pagan worship hall dedicated to the false god Dagon falls down around them. What must they have thought? I mean, here they are partying, looking at Samson. How we, we are winners. You're a loser. Our God's the true God. Your God is no God. And then suddenly, the walls begin to fall. The pillars crumble. The people on the roof begin to scream. What must they have thought? I think their cry would change to, their God's the true God. Samson's God really is God. And we are the ones are going to be destroyed. On what was the weakest, darkest day of Samson's life, he performed his greatest act of salvation. So that, as verse 30 says it, the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. This is not an act of suicide. 
This is an act of sacrifice. This is a sacrificial act of salvation. So what are we to make of Samson? What are we to learn of this flawed judge raised up to save Israel from the Philistines? Well, there are no doubt many lessons, and we've touched on some of them through the study. But there are two primary ones I don't want us to miss before we close. The first is this. Samson teaches us much about God's way with his people. Specifically, he teaches us that God is a God of sovereignty and grace. People today often think the Lord helps those who help themselves. Right? You might think that that's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's not what the Bible teaches. People think, well, if you do good, then God will bless you and good will come to you. If you do bad, bad will come to you. That's karma. That's not what the Bible teaches. Sometimes Christians just buy into karma and just add a little God talk. Well, if you're a good little Christian, then good things will happen to you. If you're not a good Christian, bad things will happen to you. And we act as if the world moves through this type of karmic force. The God of the Bible doesn't operate that way. We must never fall into the trap of thinking that though God calls us to obey His commandments, our obedience somehow earns His favor. That is false. We never earn God's favor. Nor must we allow ourselves ever to think that our failures somehow disqualify us from God's grace. I fear there's some of you here this morning that are thinking just that way. You've sinned too much. There's too much in you. Stuff that if anybody knew about, they wouldn't even want to be in the same room with you. And so you just can't allow yourself to believe that God is for you, that He loves you, He's willing to accept you. And friend, the truth is, if you come to Him in Jesus, you trust Jesus, God loves you, accepts you, is for you, not because of what you have done or not done, but because of what Jesus has once and forever done. And you can believe that. And you can be free. You can know that God is your God not because of you, but because of Jesus. It's grace. It's pure grace. Samson was seriously flawed. And in such failure and in such sin, he's a reflection of our own sinfulness. Yet because God is a God of grace and might, he calls Samson and uses Samson. He preserves Samson. He keeps his promise to Samson. So when we look at Samson's life, if we're seeing it rightly, we're not wowed by Samson. We're wowed by Samson's God. <laughs> what kind of God is this? Use a man like that. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be encouraged by this. Don't think you can send away God's grace. Again, it doesn't mean you have a license to live however you want to. What it does mean is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It's a promise. It's going to happen. So live on the basis of that promise. Keep trusting. Keep repenting. Keep going. Take heart. The second lesson is this. Samson teaches us about God's way of salvation for his people. I've called him the startup savior because before he was born, the angel told his parents he would begin to save Israel from the Philistines. In that capacity, Samson is a shadow, a type of the 
final Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you follow the story carefully, you see there are many parallels between Samson's life and the life of Jesus Christ. He was betrayed by somebody very close to him, as was Jesus. He was delivered over to people who abused him, just like Jesus. He died with his arms outstretched, just like Jesus. When it looked like he was completely defeated, he accomplished his greatest work of victory, just like Jesus. By his death, he crushed his enemies, just like Jesus. On the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put to open shame, to put them to open shame by triumphing over them. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. On cr- the cross, Jesus defeated death. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin. The victory was assured when he said, It is finished. Jesus is the complete Savior who brings about a complete salvation. And Samson is just a weak shadow type of that that points forward to that one who would come, who today we look back and see has come. Jesus Christ. But there's a significant difference between Samson's life and death and Jesus's. When Samson died, he only saved Israel partially. Jesus saves completely. When Samson died, his family came, got his body, and buried him, and he stayed dead. When Jesus died, he was buried, and three days later, God raised him from the dead. Never to die again, he's alive today. So in all the ways that Samson failed, Jesus succeeded. And he completely saves all those who trust him as Lord. So, as Hebrews 7.25 says, because Jesus has died and been raised from the dead, He is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through Him. Because Jesus ever lives to make intercession for them. If you're not trusting Jesus, trust Him today. Believe Him today. Call Him Lord today. Brothers and sisters, keep trusting Jesus. He is the complete Savior we need. He's all we need. Everything He came to accomplish will be fulfilled. Believe it. Because he died and was raised from the dead to guarantee it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this life of Samson. The testimony that it makes to us about your greatness, your power to to use somebody like him. Even in all his failures. Lord, it gives us hope that you can use us with our weaknesses. I pray that you would cause your spirit to run among us with your word and seal to our hearts these wonderful truths about a complete Savior we have in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.